Canabante is probably one of the most respectable human beings I know. His laundry list of achievements include being a scholar throughout his life, graduating cum laude, and batch valedictorian of Ateneo de Manila University in 2012. Afterwards, he'd obtain a master's degree in public administration and international development at the Harvard Kennedy School. Ken has worked in government and in civil society, where he places himself at the center of issues people would rather ignore. This is the abridged version of his achievements, of course, as a full enumeration of the causes Ken devotes himself to and the things he has achieved would be an episode in and of itself. In today's episode, we talk about the Bureau of Customs, which Ken worked with during his time in the Department of Finance, the problem of traffic in the Philippines, and potential solutions, how public money was spent fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, the history of martial law in the Philippines, and who Ken intends to vote for president. Lenny Robredo. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. For the benefit of the listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Ken Abante. I'm an um, organizer, researcher, and teacher. Uh, I mostly help uh, collective action movements uh, push, for, uh, push for policy and systems change. So, Ken, we actually reconnected a few years ago because I asked you for a copy of a paper you did on one of the government agencies I interface with a lot, the Bureau of Customs. Um, the Bureau of Customs is particularly interesting because in the recent Comelec debate, well, this was a few weeks ago now, uh, nearly all of the presidential candidates said that they would investigate the Bureau of Customs for corruption. Can you please articulate why that is? Yeah, um, I think that actually has scientific survey basis. Uh, the Social Weather Station said that at least 2005, the Bureau of Customs really has been the least sincere in fighting corruption among government agencies. Um, and uh, it's one of the most important agencies to look at if you really want to make a dent uh, in terms of both what real people experience to be uh, corruption uh, and of course, what people perceive to be uh, uh, to be you know the kind of government that you lead, um, and uh, so it's a it's a really important agency. Mm. So now, I guess uh, most people in the Philippines they don't really have an experience of how the Bureau of Customs actually functions in the day to day. So, in your own words, do you mind articulating how the bureau might have fallen short of its mandate? Yeah. So. The, the Bureau actually has three major mandates. So the first is to collect revenues you know, for, for government. Uh, it, it is one-fifth of the total revenue, so it's quite substantial uh, that that government uses to collect you know, taxes so that we can fund our schools, fund our hospitals, uh, fund, uh, fund our frontliners or COVID response. So that's one important aspect of it. But Actually, equally important are the two other roles. So the, the second role is trade facilitation, meaning it should make sure that goods flow through the border smoothly so that we can, uh, so, that, so that businesses run better, you know, people can manufacture goods, um, we can get our balikbayan boxes on time, you know, we can, uh, we can, get whatever uh, thing that we ordered from <laughs> from uh, from from Lazada or Shopee or uh, whatever uh, uh, so th so that it arrives on time so it's very important to do that trade facilitation and lastly border control you know the it's important to make sure that the things that arrive into the Philippines aren't contraband so things like 
uh, drugs or smuggled rice or smuggled vegetables, uh, flooding the market uh, and um, and really hitting you know farmers and uh, domestic uh, manufacturers uh, in in the Philippines. So I think those are three uh, of the major uh, components. In my view, um, and this is what I argue in my thesis, you know, uh, the government uh, like for a long time has, I think, defaulted to mostly revenue generation and border control, meaning they want to inspect all the shipments. But what that does actually uh, is two things, and this is something I show in the paper. Um, it slows down cargo, and it also increases the opportunities for corruption and bribery. Even if, you know, the, the things that you inspect don't really have what you call derogatory or negative findings. Like, if you search the shipment, it probably is okay. You know, even if, even if they inspect a lot. Mm -hmm. So I've actually read your thesis, but for the benefit of the listeners, like, how do we know that uh, the, the Bureau of Customs deviates so wildly from what could be acceptable for a government agency with its mandate? Um, one is when we look at, you know, international standards. Um, so, so there's what you call the traffic light system, right, in terms of inspection in customs. So there's the green lane, you uh, only get randomly inspected, but most of it just flows through. Uh, you have the yellow lane where you, they inspect your documents. Uh, and there's the red lane where they really physically inspect your goods. So in the Philippines, you have a widely, wild, widely, wild, sorry, wildly high <laughs> red lane uh, and quite a small green lane compared to other countries. You know, um, so the green lane in the Philippines the last time I checked was 25%. Um, it's, I think, getting bigger the last time that Commissioner Guerrero uh, spoke. Uh, and the red lane uh, was around 20 to 25%, um, still very high. So you inspect a lot of shipments. You don't have the manpower for it um, or the human resources for it, rather. Uh, and uh, what that does is it increases the number of times that um, you know, people can, uh, can solicit bribes at the, at the port. So it's important actually to have a better inspection system uh, because uh, according to one of the previous commissioners, the, uh, the, they inspect, you know, around 20 to 95% of the shipments, but of those shipments, only 1% yields derogatory or bad findings, right? So, so, so why inspect that much if you only yield that little in terms of inspections? It's better to uh, lower, lower it, but target it better meaning look at the characteristics of shipments that will most likely have uh, you know, a reason to inspect uh, and, and not, uh, uh, not increase the discretion of uh, uh, customs officers at the border. So you've actually, um, how do I say it? You've actually kind of articulated the question. Uh, you've actually already answered this next question to a certain extent, but um, what, are, what are some of the reforms that are being undertaken to help change the way that customs interfaces with uh, those that avail of its services. Yeah, so one, one good thing, and this is actually where I kind of disagree with the presidential candidates, um, because over the past few years, uh, at least from what we see uh, in, in policy, uh, in the uh, customs and policy circles, um, there, there have actually been quite a few uh, improvements in 
the Customs Bureau. Uh, even if, uh, you know, a lot of it takes time <laughs> uh, and uh, it will always be imperfect because there are so many holes to uh, fill in. Um, uh, the, current, the current Customs Commissioner is actually on the right track um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, making sure that the permitting system is better and uh, um, it's more electronic. So you have the what they call the ASEAN single window that they're trying to integrate across the different uh, countries. Uh, you know, the people really worked hard on that. Um, and uh, some of my friends whom, uh, for the context of the listeners, I, I, I was actually involved in uh, customs reform from 2013 to 2016. Um, and I personally experienced how difficult it is to, to reform uh, the Bureau. Uh, but the hats off to the, to the team who's you know, pushing these difficult reforms inside. So that's one I think. Uh, I think the pandemic really forced uh, Customs to uh, make some of its processes electronic. Again, it's not perfect, you know, but uh, one really interesting development is that uh, there's a World Bank project on computerizing some of these systems uh, that's, I think, gained significant traction over the past, uh, over the past few years. Um, and I really look forward to that. Um, it, that's something that takes years to, to make, uh, but we think there's progress there. Uh, but third and most important, which is something that I actually got to ask the commissioner personally, um, was... Uh, actually changing the inspection thresholds. So they've, so actually the, the good news is um, Customs has lowered uh, its uh, red inspection lane, uh, I think broadened a bit uh, their green lane uh, and um, included uh, some, uh, some mechanisms for trusted importers to, f to have their goods for flow more, more freely. Uh, in what we call the authorized economic operator program. Um, or basically, if you're trusted, if you have a good record, uh, it's going to be easier for your goods to enter uh, to enter the port. So I think those are important reforms. It's dangerous work. <laughs> um, and if you've, um, if, you've, if you've been following the news, there have been actual, uh, you know, customs officers who have been have been killed or attempted uh, to be killed. Um, uh, personally, uh, one deputy commissioner whom we recruited to the, for the reform, uh, Deputy Commissioner Art Lechica, uh, in 2016 was shot and gunned down uh, because he was trying to change the way that customs buys its goods and appoints its rank and file uh, employees. So um, I think that that's why in any public forum uh, I've you know, also tried my best to, you know, support the people who are inside trying to actually push for these changes. So that's a very long answer. So actually, because like my perspective on the Bureau of Customs is particularly unique. Because I, I uh, we've been an exporter for about 40 years and I have the good I have the good fortune of being the president of a, a small chamber of commerce based out of Cebu. And like, if I can just be frank, like the sentiments of I, I think I'm a bit more forgiving in that regard because the sentiments of businessmen uh, are not very good. Like, uh, uh, there's lots of blatant accusations of corruption. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. 
Um, so there's this, there was an exporter that uh, was importing like a large amount of lumber, and what happened was they got hit by typhoon Odette, and he wasn't able to secure his lumber import permit before the lumber uh, hit the port of Cebu International Port, and I don't know, like it was like it was this, this terrible nightmare of a scenario, and uh, the business community got up in arms and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they started throwing these accusations. But then, like, I, you know, as a lawyer, I'm thinking, like, why didn't you just get the permit and stuff like that? But, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. I was forced to advocate on behalf of that uh, importer and, uh, you know, to try to see, like, if there weren't some amicable ways to resolve the scenario without, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, filing uh, cases of smuggling or something. Um, and to be honest, like, it's equal parts. Yes, there is, like, some blame that happens in, or some blame that can be put at the foot of um, the Bureau of Customs. But I think also it's... Largely to do with the fact that we as businessmen, we're, we've kind of grown so disillusioned with the level of corruption that does exist in um, our government that we don't take the time to actually reassess and see if, in fact, things are getting better. And yeah. I like to think that they are, although they're not, they're not quite where we'd like them to be. Yeah. Mm. So I guess speaking to that point about like trying to get more people to understand about what genuine reform looks like, you spent three years in the Bureau of Customs reforming it. What, does, what did work... Uh, like look like for someone who's trying to change an institution as monolithic as the bureau. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that, that that's uh, that's good. I, I mean that's a good question, uh, Rami. And uh, you know, uh, you have me <laughs> go go back down memory lane. Um, it's uh, I was mostly a support staff. You know, I was very young uh, there. They, they were there were officials whom I was supporting. You know, Commissioner Sevilla. Uh, and that uh, that group of appointees uh, that was tasked to try to reassess and improve uh, the bureau. Uh, so, as a support staff, uh, I mostly uh, took orders <laughs> from from senior officials, but also tried to uh, to to research, you know, on some of the more uh, data-oriented uh, uh, things. You know? So, one uh, a day a day in the life would look like. Um, you know, writing all of these different policy notes, reading all these memos, um, trying to staff for either the commissioner or the, the boss, the secretary of finance, uh, in some of the meetings with some of the uh, higher officials, uh, like meeting with the president or meeting with other cabinet members. You know, <laughs> I'd write some of their briefers to try to give them, uh, you know, a summary of what has happened, you know, the facts of uh, each of these different cases or whatever the agenda was. Um, we'd write, you know, and clear some press releases that would, uh, that because communication is so important uh, in a reform. Uh, there were sleepless nights, <laughs> you know, trying to prepare for some of these uh, moves uh, because they do actually require a lot of paperwork uh, from government so that, uh, so that there's enough documentation uh, for some of these actions. Um, some, uh, there was also a time when we were trying to change the law uh, for customs, you know, you know, Customs Modernization and Tariff Act. So we'd go to Congress, uh, and I'd I do staff support for some of our officials who would uh, who would end up, you know, taking the stand or uh, uh, being asked by uh, by people in Congress uh, about about the certain items under this law, uh, at least those that were those that we knew, <laughs> that, those those that we knew about. Um, and so that's how, that's how, that's how it was. Um, we'd always be, you know, I, I'd say the mood was, 
we'd always be cautiously optimistic, but always worried. Um, um, because we were trying to attempt something that, you know, was different. You know, and a lot of people um, would disagree with some of the moves um, that, uh, that were made during that time. Um, but, you know, some of the results were just amazing. Like, you know, 20 plus percent growth in collections year on year um, from some of those uh, from some of those reforms that we made. Um, but again, that's not the only measure, right? You also have to measure how fast things move at the port. Um, and at least from where we stood, there was, uh, things did become faster, um, but we'd always be worried for each other's safety. Uh, like that was, that was uh, one cloud above our heads, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, that's actually something that personally I struggle with because uh, right now I have the good privilege of being in a, I, I guess you would call it an honorary technical role. Yeah, right? I, yeah. advise, I advise the government on ease of doing business issues. Uh, the, the, the technical designation in my position is that I am the Export Development uh, Council's mm, Networking EDC. Committee yeah. on Legislative and Advocacy Monitoring. Mm. So An important role. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the, if, if the name was shorter, maybe I would believe that statement. <laughs> Uh, um, no, but then, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things because, uh, like, even though I'm the president of a chamber of commerce, I can't just be like a businessman and, like, say, oh, I don't understand the monolith that is government and I don't want to be bothered to affect the wheels of policy because I'm a lawyer, yeah. right? I can't claim the benefit of ignorance. And so if I see a problem, I have to go after it. And I, I asked you that question specifically because I just wanted to convey to anyone who might be listening that, you know, changing policy is hard and yeah. articulating it is hard. Right? And, and, and getting, like, marshalling the moving pieces to be able to get behind the policy that you might want. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like it's it, it takes so much work. So much know. teeth pulling, so much position papers, so many meetings, endless yeah, meetings. So many, so many meetings. <laughs> Maybe that's what the day in the life would like look like, really. Um, like meetings, uh, a lot of meetings, trying to talk to so many people uh, and, and get them... Uh, get them to get to a consensus. Mm. But my, my, yeah, it's one of those things, though, that I really wish that the Philippines was better at. We don't really have that, um, I guess, like a more uh, uh, professional lobbying industry, which might, which might alleviate some of these problems because then businesses could simply pay that, oh, these are the kinds of initiatives that we'd like. This is the positive change we'd like to see in society and then we could lobby behind it. It really falls to individuals uh, who, you know, take the time out of their day to, like, devote to uh, making the Philippines better. And, and on that point, uh, let me ask you a question. If the Bureau does reform and it does get better, what's the benefits to society? Oh yeah, uh, there, there are many benefits uh, to society. The first is, you. I mean, one, th one thing is I think we all get more affordable, higher quality goods here, um, both from international uh, merchandisers who export to the Philippines, but also from domestic manufacturers who are protected because we don't get flooded by all these uh, different products that end up being uh, so, uh, yeah, dumping, es essentially. You know, super cheap products because they don't pay taxes on them, right? Um, and that's unfair to domestic manufacturers. Um, the, that's one, one of the major things. <laughs> we get our Lazada and Shopee things faster. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, um, the... And, and and hopefully cheaper as well, you know. Um, 
um, and and more affordable. Um, we also get, you know, uh, we get better revenues to fund uh, a lot of the things that we need. Um, and the third is we get, uh, you know, safer, um, uh, safer goods that that follow better product standards because they go through the regulatory processes that they're supposed to go through, uh, and the regulatory processes are uh, are not geared towards making a quick buck, you know, bribing um, people, but really, uh, really fulfilling their mandate. Uh, so. Many benefits to society. Uh, I think, from a from a public trust point of view in government, you know, to me that's one of the bureaus I really look at. You know, as a sort of like a bellwether uh, to uh, to understand. It's one of the most difficult agencies to reform, uh, and you know, any any attempt to try to reform it, we try to support from outside. Uh, and just to your point about you know, public interest lobbying. Um, I think I think it's important to really build, you know, collective action around, you know, what are the what are the specific systemic changes we want, and con continuously work with government to ensure that these are implemented and implemented well. So I, I mean, hats off to you for <laughs> trying to do that in your capacity as that long title, <laughs> EDC long title. Yeah. Um, so speaking to your point about like. Um lobbying for uh, policy change and creating that kind of collective action. Uh, you're currently affiliated with the Move as One uh, coalition, which aims to address the traffic of, is it public mobility? Am I getting that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mobility and public transport, yeah. I guess, and I think this is something that doesn't need to be articulated so much because people understand it, but uh, I'll ask you anyway, just so you can articulate the scope of the problem, perhaps with more uh, clarity than most could. How big is the problem of traffic in the Philippines and what is it costing us? Yeah, um... Uh, it, it costs us, you know, billions a day. Uh, but I really wanted to focus less on that economic number and more, you know, the human suffering and indignity that's caused by having an inhumane public transport and mobility system. You know, you, uh, I'm a commuter. <laughs> um, like many of, many Filipinos are. In fact, 95% of Filipinos don't own a car. Um, and so majority really must take public transport, walk, or cycle. Um, and if you want to get, you know, maybe a clear expression of what the problem looks like, look at the train stations, look at the buses uh, that that fit people like, you know, that treat people like they're sardines, you know, <laughs> sardines in a can, or the really long lines like. Uh, some some people tell me that they sometimes lined up for three hours just to get to a platform in a train, um, or the fact that you know persons with disabilities can't can't cross the street because you have to cross through a dreaded overpass that doesn't respect people's uh, that is ableist essentially, you know uh, that's biased towards people who are able-bodied, uh, but you know totally neglects the uh, the experiences of persons with disabilities and they're, they're brothers and sisters um, or you know health workers who during the pandemic when public transport was suspended in a misguided policy needed to walk for three to four hours to get to their hospital so they can save our lives or essential workers 
Um, so I think more than the cost of uh, more than the billions uh, that 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 it costs us, uh, I think it's the indignity that it causes a lot of a lot of Filipinos. So I guess one of the things that Uh, really is difficult in the Philippines is that we have a hard time conceptualizing what solutions to traffic might look like because we've had a very car-centric society and I can say this having lived nine years in Manila and most of my life in Cebu, right? So I guess there's a lack of imagination on our part. Coming from someone who's given it so much thought, what do solutions to that problem look like? Yeah, um, I think the, the good thing about this problem is that you can point to both local and international examples to show that they've done it, you know. Uh, local examples include, uh, you know, many parts of Iloilo City, uh, or um, some parts of Pasig, or you know, look internationally and look at cities like Amsterdam, or Utrecht, or Hong Kong, or Seoul. Uh, and I think one really interesting thing that that people normally say whenever I they they react whenever I see this is. You know, we're not like Seoul. We're not like Amsterdam. Hindi naman yung Pilipinas. Yung Pilipinas, wala naman yung pag-asa eh. I, I hear that. Uh, you know, uh, almost uh, every time. Uh, but I always tell them that the history of these cities and these countries, they were also car-centric before. Uh, and the key to solving it is actually move away from the conception of a problem that the problem is traffic. Because the problem is not traffic. The problem is how do you move people more freely, more efficiently, more sustainably, more, uh, more uh, environmentally friendly you know, uh, from point A to point B. That's what uh, one of the uh, urban planners uh, told us. It's not traffic that's the problem. It's people's mobility. It's public transport. Um, and you know the, the key to solving it is move people from their private vehicles and make it easier for them to shift to walking, cycling, and public transport. Like, the theory is really that simple. Um, because, you know, the, the private car, the four-wheeled private car, is actually one of the least efficient ways of travel. You have very limited urban space, and so you keep widening your streets and end up cutting down your trees. Uh, you end up mowing down your parks, Uh, and um, and that's something we we shouldn't have. You know, we should we should make it easier for people to move from their private cars and um, not make people feel that they're dependent on on their cars for their for their travel. So I guess because the way you stated it's so self-evident. Like, what? Are, why haven't these measures been implemented yet? Yeah. So. Um, That's actually the subject of a lot of our policy papers in uh, in mobility. Um, so whenever whenever we see this, you know, the theory is so simple: like move people from their cars to walking, cycling, public transport. Then you improve people's mobility. Then people say, you know, it's uh, so why haven't we done it? <laughs> and I think, and then and then people say, you know, people despair or become cynical uh, and say, you know, wala na pag-asa ang Uh, Maynila, wala nang pag-asa ang Pilipinas. Uh, and then people say, bulok ang sistema. But what part of the system do we really want to change? Diba? That's how we make the conversations more constructive. Uh, and one specific aspect of the system that needs to change is the way that we budget 
for public transport and mobility. So one of the things we found, Rami, was for since 2010, at least from all the budget documents, so we studied budget documents, audit documents, <laughs> name it, we've probably looked at it. Um, we've invested 2.8 trillion pesos on road construction, widening, and maintenance, and road infrastructure. No? So that 2.8 trillion, 99% of that is car-centric infrastructure. You know, widening your roads that really doesn't solve traffic, it makes traffic worse, right? And only 1% since 2010, or 40 billion pesos, was invested in uh, protected bike lanes. So things like uh, better pedestrian infrastructure, things like um, uh, better contracts for transport workers. And so one important call that the public interest groups like Move Us One are pushing for is a better use of our taxpayer money, like a better balance for a better normal, so to speak. Um, move some of that money into these absurdly cheap but really effective solutions. <laughs> like building be building better bike lanes, uh, building at-grade pedestrian crosswalks so persons with disabilities could uh, could move more freely, building a continuous pedestrian safe pathway uh, for for people, uh, and paying our transport workers correctly, because they're currently under a terrible boundary system where they have to compete for passengers on the street, uh, and you know, they're disincentivized from following physical distancing or public health regulations um, because their, their take-home pay is based on the number of passengers they carry. But we can, in fact, afford to pay them a fixed, a fixed wage, a better wage, a livable wage. Um, and, uh, you know, those are, things that, those are things that always excite me because the money's there. It's possible to do. Uh, and we've actually succeeded in pushing for some of these initial investments uh, because we work with uh, the people who experience the problems every day. Well, actually, it's one of those things that uh, I personally, like, if they are, in fact, cheaper, I think one of the unintended benefits might be that there's less money in the pot for corruption. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. Let me just share with you, like, some stories that get back to me uh, as a lawyer. Uh, yeah. it's, it's one of those things because I'm getting more and more well-known for understanding property law and so... Mm -hmm. A lot of my consultations are like this, and it comes up so often. Oh, we have some intermediate <laughs> right of way, right, right of way, <laughs> yeah, road widening, and then it's like, uh, oh yeah, we have an intermediary coming to approach us, and then they say that they can get this much money from the DPWH, but we have to split it with the yeah, person yeah, who's, who's yeah. the decision maker. And I'm just like, uh, I'm so, like, I'm so sick and tired of this. Can we just make it a bike lane so it's so cheap? <laughs> and then they, they they can't they couldn't be bothered to be this corrupt about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's probably one of the reasons why it's hard, Rami. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My gosh. And then also like like you know as a as a lawyer also like the law and order situation in the Philippines is not so good because like our judiciary is so underfunded. I could in good conscience recommend to the person. Hey, you know what? If you really, if you really don't like the way that it's being done, we could go to court, and then we could get you the amount that you're supposed to do, so that you wouldn't need this intermediary. But I know that it's going to take years to get yeah, the, this yeah. compensation through the courts, and so usually the offer made by the DPWH is the best way, right? Even even with the added um, tax that corruption imposes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> going away from that very difficult, very muddy topic. Uh, <laughs> so we had. 
uh, we had a really big infrastructure push. You know, that, that was the, one of the landmark features of this, this current administration. As, at, at, at the time of this recording, this is the Duterte administration. Um, and it, it was called Build, 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 famously. Um, you'd think that it uh, addressed the problems of mobility. Did it address the problems of mobility? Uh, as of now, no. Um, it, it actually, uh, in my view, the current pipeline. So we also studied the, the transport infrastructure pipeline. So around, uh, you know, a trillion pesos uh, worth of like big ticket transport infrastructure investments. Um, but most of it are real investments. They're important, you know, very important, but they'll take years before it affects the mobility of people because it takes years to build. Um, and so even in the way that government conceptualizes public transport infrastructure, there's still very, you know, heavy infrastructure heavy, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and where the most effective, faster, cheapest, more, more, more sustainable options are really your bike lanes, are really your wider pedestrian walkways with beautiful trees, you know, uh, where, where, you know, that, that cools our urban heat. Uh, you, you, you have solutions like uh, bus rapid transits. Um, uh, the, the Cebu one has been, uh, has been uh, delayed <laughs> for years. Uh, and frankly, it's terrible. Um, the, the EDSA bus rapid transit was also uh, uh, shelved. Uh, so that's why during this pandemic, right, they, they had to do the EDSA carousel uh, for, for their bus, which is actually a good move. Uh, but I wonder what <laughs> the welfare of millions of commuters would have been better if, you know, the bus rapid transit projects had come through. Or, you know, things like paying our transport workers better. Those are the things that I think we should be focusing our attention on. Uh, because, you know, even with all those hard infrastructure investments, public transport supply is really low. There's a systemic shortage, as we argue in one of our papers. Um, something like, uh, 2 million trips, 2.8 million trips, uh, daily passenger trips don't get uh, don't get filled, supplied, filled, yeah. yeah, don't get filled on on time. Um, it's terrible, right? Um, so, so it's important to ensure that we have more public transport supply, but you have government as well uh, trying to also modernize its fleet, which is also important. But is not. But they're not supporting transport workers better. So, transport workers that we work with, the unions, uh, they're pushing for what we call a just transition. You know, uh, the current support for them to change from their traditional jeepneys to their uh, to the electric, uh, to some electric jeepneys or some what they call modernized jeepneys, um, uh, is only uh, used to be eighty thousand pesos. You know. As a subsidy for for them to upgrade, no, no transport worker will, will be able to afford that shift to a modernized vehicle that can cost anywhere from 1.5 million to 3 million pesos, <laughs> right? So what they're pushing is actually very reasonable. Uh, give them a 25%. Give them 25% of that acquisition cost, like 500,000 pesos. That's all they ask, and it's affordable, and it's great. But at the current design, the current design of that system, 
will phase out many transport workers who really want uh, to be part of the change to be part of the change uh, but are being you know understandably riled up and and they're they're afraid uh, and they're they're fighting and they're pushing uh, but but uh, even that demand is uh, uh, has so far not been heard um, but uh, we're, we're pushing with them and trying to push for those investments in the modernization program so so again you know to go back to the question has has the mobility problem been solved no in fact more people found it harder to commute during this pandemic uh, according to the social weather station survey uh, since 2012 actually public transport trips have collapsed uh, in radial and circumferential roads in metro manila while private car trips increased so it's a vicious circle we're in that we need to get out of that by uh, focusing investment on um, walking cycling public transport what, 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 what do we need from the public to make that change occur quicker we need to demand better from our government uh, and how to concretely do it do this um, to engage your senators engage your district representatives, engage your mayors. Uh, I think one really wonderful thing about organizing uh, and you know the friendships that we've built uh, over the past years uh, was that we saw how local groups really pushed for change at the local level. Uh, one really good example here uh, is actually Cebu. Uh, you know, the Cebu Bike Lanes Board uh, with uh, with one of our good friends, Ellie of Cebu Leads Foundation, you know, really pushing, pushing the Cebu bike lane agenda, which is fantastic. Uh, pushing for better uh, urbanism, uh, and you see, you know, because of our budget push as well, you know, Cebu got the bike lanes uh, as well. Uh, it's a start, but they're making it, uh, making it into a real plan over the next few years. I'm really inspired by Cebu, uh, or my hometown, Naga. We were able to push our local council to uh, to invest, you know, three million pesos this year. Uh, we're applying for more national government funding, uh, but there are there are really good ways for us to push at the local level. Um, and uh, I'd invite people actually to join Move Us One <laughs> and join some of our programs, like the Young Mobility Leaders Program, where we. Uh, where we work and journey with people to become better mobility advocates at the local level. Um, so actually, one of the things that I was particularly um, interested in, in the work that you've done, is you created something called the, the Citizens Budget Tracker, which I think made real so much for so many people, or at least made accessible with so many people, the, the, this process of public accountability. So if I just wanted to ask, like, what is the state of our public finances, man? Yeah, uh, wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a broad question. Um, <laughs> but uh, wait, I mean, as it relates to the citizens' budget tracker, I, I understand how the, the question's a bit broad. Um, so, uh, so it's the it's the second anniversary of the citizens' budget tracker today, like April second. Uh, started with a small Facebook post, like uh, anyone making a tracker on Philippine uh, government budget allocation and spending on COVID nineteen. Because, and the reason why I asked was because my my aunt and my cousin, who are frontliners in the province, couldn't get their PPEs. So even after, even after you know, we got some of the initial PPE supplies from the office of the vice president. So, uh, VP Lenny was the first national official to actually give 
uh, PPEs to my uh, to my family members. The next logical question was, wasn't there a budget for this, right? Why aren't my loved ones protected? Isn't it aren't aren't all don't all frontliners deserve better protection from government? And so we <laughs> so after 24 hours we made that tracker. Uh, I think what to, to your question about the state of public finances, sadly many of the talk points we said two years ago remain the same today. Uh, you have a public budget. We actually have a lot of cash. You know, we have money to spend so that we have an equitable recovery. Our group called the People's Budget Coalition, of which the Citizens Budget Tracker is a part, you know, of sectoral representatives, we're, we're organizing for 1.2 trillion pesos in equitable recovery investments from COVID-19 and the fuel crisis. Only 69 billion pesos of that has been funded, including some of the budgets that I told you a while ago about transport. Uh, but that's just 6%, right? Uh, so if that's the case, what did national government invest on? Right? Just to give you a sense of proportion, Rami, 1.2 trillion pesos is just one-fifth of the total national government budget, which is 5 trillion pesos. So we have a lot of space. But most of the government budget is spent on, like what we mentioned a while ago, uh, big-ticket infrastructure items. And we, we really try to guard what happens as the budget evolves from its inception in the executive, when the executive submits it to the House, the House and the Senate debate it, and they reconcile it in what we call the Bicameral Conference Committee. We were fighting throughout that process, uh, but what happened in the final Bicameral Conference Committee version was they increased by 100 billion the Department of Public Works and Highways budget and removed some of the things like Ayuda, um, like the additional benefits for healthcare workers to so what we call the unprogrammed fund. It's not a fund, not, not an assured part of the national government budget. We're not sure whether it will be funded. So if you look at the priorities, you know, really misguided priorities, which we think is actually a deadly blunder uh, by, the, by the national government uh, in supporting uh, frontliners and healthcare workers uh, and students and you know, uh, essential workers. A and um, you know, I'm honestly really riled up about it. Uh, honestly, really riled up about it. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what inspires me, I guess, is the group continues to push for change. We just had a press conference last, last week, like the, the, just last week, uh, where, you know, sectoral representatives from transport, from healthcare, from education, uh, uh, from persons with disabilities, all of us came together and said, we're going to push for this together again and demand better from our candidates so that the 2023 budget is better. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a sad state of our finances that has, has made, has, has, uh, has prolonged, unnecessarily protracted the suffering of our people. So just 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 uh, just as a quick aside, so 
just to explain some of my own experiences with the House of Representatives, sometimes I sit on like committee hearings. Like, mm-hmm. I had the mm-hmm. privilege of um, sitting in a in a the the uh, uh, conference committee hearing after the third reading of the Public Service Act amendments. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was the funniest thing in the world. What happened was, uh, as I'm an exporter, and one of the big issues that we we try to push against is uh, inter-island shipping rates being too high mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right that's something that that really challenges the way we do business and i, I went into this uh, committee hearing cold because i was asked by our head of advocacy that oh you know we need we need someone there to represent yeah, yeah. and then I, you know my name is rami harani which does not sound immediately um filipino i mean obviously it's not filipino and someone accused me of being a foreigner <laughs> oh no <laughs> it's like wag mo pakinggan siya kasi foreigner lang yan baka ano best oh God. interest yan uh, uh, so uh, well at least with us we came out uh, we came out successful because there was mm-hmm. this really big push towards solving those problems right and uh, but I can imagine when and the wind was in our sales eh? that's why it was easy for us because there was you know the bill the president had certified that particular bill as urgent urgent but, yeah I, I I, and I could see the frustration on the faces of the people that were pushing against the bill and were not getting their way. So I, I can only imagine what it must have been like for you and then to see like your your proposed measure just being gutted on the floor, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so we've articulated how there's definitely a problem with the, the way that the government allocates its funds, right? Is there other things that, um, you know, you wish were more common knowledge? What, what are things that you wish the public knew about the way that uh, the public money is uh, appropriated or, or put towards particular purposes in the pursuit of the public good. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish more people knew that we could actually take advantage of these forums. That we as citizens have both the right and responsibility to actually be in those meetings and demand and carve out that space for ourselves. Um, I think, I, I wish that were more common knowledge. But I, I guess... I guess people sometimes, and understandably so, uh, people find it intimidating because it, like, oh my gosh, it's what what is, uh, what is a <laughs> bicam? What is a, what, what is a bicam? What is a GAA? What is the NEP? Uh, you have all these acronyms uh, that it it makes public budgeting sound so intimidating. But what it really is, you know, is our taxpayer money being deliberated, being discussed in the public institutions that are supposed to serve us. I, I, I wish more people knew that. Uh, but I guess what, where, we're, where we're headed, and this is what excites me as well, is that the groups that we've formed uh, and the friendships that we've built, <laughs> we feel like uh, we're in the trenches together really in these advocacies across the different sectors is you know, this greater acknowledgement that involvement in the budget process is critical. You know, we have, you know, many non-government organizations, many civil society groups, even business groups uh, engaging in that process. Uh, and um, and we're undertaking as well, you know, uh, a young budget leaders program. Yeah, uh, so where we're going to journey with three historically disenfranchised sectors, help them craft their budget messages. How can they put figures to what their needs are um, and work with them on that and help them engage the Senate Committee on Finance. 
help them engage the House Committee on Appropriations or, or help them engage the, the specific people that they really need to talk to or their agencies uh, so that everyone, everyone can carve out that space for themselves because it's ours to claim. Yeah, you know, that's actually one of those things that um, I, I really struggle to articulate. Like, the Philippines has a very capable government. Like, uh, uh, okay, uh, let, let me qualify that statement, right? It's very powerful in the way that it can affect change. But it, it, it's really just, to a certain extent, it's just the people's unwillingness to sort of approach that government with open eyes and the willingness to learn. Um, I don't know... Like something I always say to myself is it maybe because the gift of democracy was sort of quote unquote given to us, and so we didn't we didn't bleed for it. We didn't have a civil war to decide how the best way was to formulate our society. We 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 have had civil wars, of course, but then I mean, you know, not not in the context of like uh, okay, <laughs> I won't I won't get too deep into the details on this because I'm not a history major. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I, it's possible. Eh? I, I I think at the end of the day that that's 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 really what I'm trying to say, that we could ask for these things we could get these things we could get these changes but we don't we don't put the time down <laughs> and i think for me that's you know the bystander effect times a thousand <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah but what we see what what i personally see rami is when when people are invited into these spaces and you give people guidance uh to to engage people feel so empowered to, and and they are they become more proactive in pushing for these needs and demands um and that's where i think i i have a lot of hope you know um and you know i've i've been i've been reflecting a lot on the lenny kiko people's campaign and now it i think to your point like it that's the everyday work of democracy you know talking with people negotiating empathizing with other people uh building consensus those are things that we need in order to engage, you know, these, uh, these, the halls of power, so to speak, which is ours to claim as citizens. Um, and to your point about, you know, uh, you know, sacrifice or you know, bleeding for it. I think the pandemic is one. You know, the uh, people power was another, or the many people who were um, uh, killed by the dictatorship. Uh, uh, and and people who continue to struggle uh, every day. I think it it uh, you know I've and and even the even the people we've lost along the way in some of our advocacies it, it becomes it becomes very personal to me because I I knew many of these people uh, and and trying to you know live out their legacies uh, through the work that we do now I think it's um, incumbent upon. <laughs> You know, incumbent upon us to try to push uh, for better changes. This this pandemic is you know it's it's really forced us to to work together. Um, and you know I'm despite all the challenges that we have, I'm still I'm still actually excited for the future of our country uh, and and the country that we can build. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm I just have this overwhelming faith in you know the power of our people you know the and and what we can do to change this country for the better okay maybe i came off as a bit uh, too jaded after hearing that i realized <laughs> that perhaps i should just redouble my effort uh, 
uh, inculcate a sense of purpose in myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, it, it definitely everything was very well taken. But uh, let me take you somewhere else. Uh, another, another very important uh, aspect of uh, you know some of the some of the causes that you've thrown yourself at is um, you were the founding director of the Martial Law Museum, which is a mm, project mm. Out of, based out of Ateneo, right? Yeah. Um, what feelings does it engender in you that the past has sort of become a political issue and this speaks to exactly what you were just talking about? Oh, my gosh. I have so many feelings about this. <laughs> um, you know what? Wow, well, I don't even know how to describe my feelings, Rami. <laughs> I'm feeling so many things. Um, reading about what happened during the martial law years has made me realize how important it is to treat history as you know things that we continue to live out in the present you know there's always a connection of the things that we experience today with the past uh, and it's important to not lose that connection because we will keep on making the same mistakes um, there are lessons that we should relearn definitely from from that history uh, being in the martial law museum made me reflect about my own personal journey or my family's journey uh, and i think that's that's the part of history that's that should be uh, that i think that's a part of history that should be taught more or students should be guided more towards like how has your family been affected by this history because for me it's conflicted it's messy i my grandfather was a marcos appointed judge my other grandfather from my mother's side was one of the coconut farmers who was defrauded by the Marcos government because of the cocoa levy scam. Uh, and so I get from, from both sides of my family two different takes on the dictatorship. Uh, and growing up, I was really confused uh, about, about this. Like, why do we need to have democracy? It's so inefficient it's so messy it's so noisy uh, it's better that we have a strong leader uh, a leader with an iron fist that can ensure that people are disciplined right i was also fed that uh growing up uh, that uh, but i was also <laughs> but i also you know reading history and talking to my uh my, my family members it helped me realize that you know you can't invalidate the sufferings of the people who were defrauded by the marcus government who were harmed by the marcus government as close as my mother's father and uh and you know what is our personal story what is our personal stake in that history and it really does take a lot of empathy because you always hear people saying, you know, things were peaceful then. My family didn't experience a lot. But does that mean other families didn't experience what they experienced? I think that's what history teaches us. More than the figures, more than the more than the facts, more than the dates. Really the uh how well do we listen to stories? So I guess the 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 lesson that we learn from history um, and with that said and you know Marcos leading 60% to the second placer at 15% uh, 
I am, you know, appalled, I guess, at the, you know, disinformation networks <laughs> that, the, that, uh, uh, that, that the Marcoses have put into play uh, for decades, really. Um, starting with books and then with social media, uh, propping up that history. Uh, it makes me want to fight more. <laughs> um, and uh, I had a conversation with a Marcos voter. Uh, and you know, he was she, she uh, the the person I was conversing with uh, was talking about how you know Ferdinand Marcos was her idol when she was still a kid. Um, we shouldn't have a woman president. It's women uh, are weak or something. Yeah, women are weak. She's a mother, by the way. Um, uh, you know, the the we should give we should give Marcos a chance. Because even if they stole, meaning she admits that they stole, they won't steal now because they're already rich. Uh, that person will now vote for Lenny, Kiko. Uh, and what convinced her was not, was not me spewing facts about the Marcos years. Like, GDP went down by this, you know, our debt to GDP ratio still still like this, bond tayo sa utang. What convinced her was a personal story. You know, that, you know, VP Lenny was the first you know, official to give my, my, uh, my family members PPEs. My, my grandfather was defrauded by the Marcos government. So I think the good news for people who are engaged in the work of history is that we don't need to debunk all those lies. We just need one or two powerful stories uh, and to tell them to people not because we want to convert their votes but because they're people. <laughs> you know, they're, they're people, not votes. Uh, and 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 you do that with a desire to to build trust and a relationship with another person. Uh, and I think that's the miracle of uh, you know citizenship. It uh, the, but we really need to counter uh, many of these lies with not with not just with facts and numbers and figures, but with personal stories. That can change people's hearts uh, and and you know change people's minds. Well, that's actually one of the challenges that I personally have. Um, my mother she's voting for BBM. I'm not successful at converting her, and um, like she has that lived experience. Her her father was a soldier and her mother was a teacher, so both civil servants, and so she lived relatively well in a time of Ferdinand Marcos. Um, and I can't I can't you know. I can't get past that. Yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. Of course, the disinformation doesn't help and social media doesn't help. Uh, I come from a background which is mostly those facts and figures and indisputable facts, like uh, how uh, travel permit 
for government workers is required because there used to be a time when you couldn't be sure that government workers weren't leaving with duffel bags full of cash. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Um, that we have uh, a, a sort of compromise between uh, three years and six years as opposed to the two and four that you see in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We want stability, but we couldn't allow someone to sit for too long because yeah. of what Marcus did with that opportunity. Yeah. Right? Um, and, you know, all the stories I have about martial law, none of them come from personal experience. All of them are just the effects that I see in the laws. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I try to convey that to my mother, and uh, it doesn't fly. And you know, maybe it's because she's a lawyer. Maybe I'm a bit um, agitated when I communicate <laughs> these things to her. Um, but yeah, um, at the end of the day, she's still my mom. I respect her vote. Uh, yeah. But she's going to have to drive herself to the polling station. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I also have an uncle who is uh, going to vote for Marcos uh, because my, I think my, I think my, gra- my grandfather was a Marcos loyalist. Uh, my, my late grandfather uh, from my father's side was a, a Marcos loyalist. And, um, you know, part of living in a family, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always, um, it's always a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to, to to talk to them i've tried um we'll continue to try again until election and even after <laughs> we'll see um so i guess um you know you you gave some really good advice where you try to stick with stories right that one or two powerful stories that really convey the point instead of trying to be esoteric about it um or you know have these facts and figures that you try to communicate but let's 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 maybe look at some of those facts and figures some of those a niche, yeah, yeah, hidden facts that maybe are not so uh, present in the public consciousness. And I'm, I'm asking the question, and it's biased against the Marcuses because, of course, um, what to you were some of the most insidious ways that martial law has stunted the growth of the country? Uh, I think one of the things that we still feel today is the fact that after martial law, uh, after he guaranteed so many of the loans that he gave to his cronies, uh, which basically bankrupted the Philippines uh, and skyrocketed our, 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 our debt. We needed to pay that debt. Uh, so, so it was something like a single digit percentage, maybe like something like 5%. I don't recall the, the exact figure, but uh, uh, maybe that, that percentage, maybe 5% of the budget was used to pay interest on the loans, it increased to 20%. So what that meant was, we did not have enough money to, to pay for schools or to pay for better wages for teachers or for, for, for nurses or for doctors. Um, there was a flight in talent from the bureaucracy. Uh, uh, Marcus also killed many of the most brilliant minds of the previous generation uh, or jailed them or uh, really persecuted them. Uh, and so when I was in government, one could feel that uh, in the missing middle in the bureaucracy. Uh, and and one, one thing that's not often talked about, which I wish more people knew, was how Marcus's, Mar- the Marcoses, through their logging contractors, which they sold to their cronies, really denuded our forests. Like, 
absolutely terrible. Uh, and, you know, the floods that you see in Cagayan, the floods that you see in the Visayas, even in Mindanao, is because of his favors to his logging contractors. And we still feel it today. And we haven't, uh, we've, we've tried to recover some of that forest cover. You know, but my gosh, uh, th- that's one of the most striking uh, stories from our research in the Marshall Museum. By the way, uh, uh, look it up, marshallamuseum.ph. Yeah, thanks, thanks. And I'll, I'll be sure to include it in the description. So what do you think is, um, I guess, how does a candidate have to style themselves, right, in a time of Duterte and with a resurgent Marcos? Like, what do you think a successful candidate would look like? Lenny Robredo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, but um, that's really my answer. Okay, but I guess I guess uh, for those who are allergic to that name being said. Okay. What does she represent to you? Uh, I think uh, she she represents to me a leader who is willing to journey with people, so that the leader does not become the savior uh, and that ordinary people can fight for the change that they want to see. And the reason why I think it's so important that we get her elected <laughs> is because I've seen, I've seen her work um, and I've seen her treat other people, you know, not as numbers, but re- as real people. And beyond just us being beneficiaries of, you know, PPEs, uh, which we really did, uh, we were really impressed despite her office's be- meager budget. She was able to give PPEs to far-flung communities where my uh, family members live. Um, But she also helped us in Naga City lower our COVID-19 numbers. Because one of the things that we did with her uh, was June last year, when we were having our alpha beta surge in Naga, we formed the Tarabangan Contra COVID-19. So it's a civil society group uh, formed by Naga civil society groups uh, to help our city government uh, address our COVID-19 situation. And uh, we were initially just supposed to ask her about swab cab, <laughs> you know, getting testing up. But after the meeting, we were given an entire suite of support. You know, not just increasing our testing, which we did immediately after. Uh, we, we even had, uh, you know, vaccine express support. We even got uh, prevention support. You know, those webinars where we talk about ventilation. Things like that uh, with our community leaders. We got support for uh, for our patient monitoring service, like our localized version of Bayanian e-consulta. Uh, that's something that we uh, we help uh, you know build together that that entire comprehensive support, and we were able to lower our COVID numbers. A huge part because of of that type of support. Uh, and in the meetings that we had, her command of ground details was absolutely incredible. Like she even she she knew much more about the model because she's she's worked with so many people uh, and she really transferred the technology to us so that we could become better partners of the city government, so that in succeeding surges we did not need OVP itself as an office, but we ourselves became much better at COVID nineteen response because of that initial work that we did together with the office of the vice president. We. We're not beholden to her. We, she never, she never actually let us feel that we owed her, which is fantastic. Which is, uh, unfortunately, not the norm, you know, in in 
in politics. Uh, but you know, she's she's proven herself time and again to be the leader that we need in times of crisis, and the leader always delivers. And she always delivers because she makes sure that people are empowered to engage better uh, the their their local officials and their national government officials. And and um, you know you see it in her life story. That that for me is the type the type of leader I think we need after the worst crisis that we've had since the Second World War. So I guess we're we're at this terrible inflection point in the history of the Philippines. We came from this huge crisis. The world's on the precipice of a much larger conflict. Um, and this yeah, question and you have the climate crisis climate crisis <laughs> the existential threats uh, possible nuclear war <laughs> yes it's, it's, so it, this, this question is terribly unfair from one person to ask to another uh, person <laughs> uh, but it's the, it's the question I always cap the podcast with just so that um, the episodes always retain some degree of perspective what will you be doing in five years I don't know uh, I've given up on planning <laughs> um, and and I think, um, but I I do know that what I'm doing now, you know, helping collective action movements uh, fight for better policy and systems change. I think I think it's worthwhile. Uh, I certainly see myself doing this more in the near future. Uh, but I'm always open to new possibilities. You know, uh, and I guess I also wanted to cap. <laughs> I guess. This past podcast with your capping question with uh, with a hopeful answer as well. You know, you know, despite the challenges that we have, actually, no matter what the election results are, although I hope Lenny Kiko and Tropang uh, Angat win, but whatever the results of the election are, I'm still hopeful for the country, and I just have so much faith in the power of Filipinos to push for to push for something better. I guess you you can call that faith, and I, I've seen it in action. Like people always say, you know the. So government wants us to believe na walang discipline mga Pilipino, but that's not what we see whenever we ask for help in our civic movements. Uh, if you give Filipinos a chance to help, Filipinos will help. And um, you know that's that to me is you know the spirit of what it means to be you know, a citizen of this nation. <laughs> Thank you for coming on my podcast, Ken. Thank you, Rami. It's been a pleasure.